I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Effie Parks, and I'm very grateful to you for choosing to spend some of your time today here with me to listen to these important stories from our rare community. After my interviews, I spend a lot of time processing what we talked about and how I felt and remembering nuggets of wisdom. I think about your stories long after the recordings. And the story you're going to hear today was one I think I literally held my heart for the entire time. These two moms, they both serve on their advocacy boards for Chelsea's Hope, Lafora Children Research Fund. Lafora disease is a severe progressive epilepsy and it manifests in teens, and it's fatal. They're sharing about what it's like to cope with a child suffering from a severe illness with no cure, and the realities of dealing with the medical establishment about an extremely rare condition. These Lafora parents are coming together, they're funding research and medical therapies, and they were recently awarded a Chan Zuckerberg Initiative Rare as One grant. The CZI grant is going to help them so much with their urgency and their race against time to help their beautiful children. Please enjoy my conversation with a couple of the most courageous moms I've ever met, Nikki Marcoux and Jennifer Merriam. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Effie. Thank you for having us. Hi, Effie. Yes, I'm looking forward to chatting with you. I hadn't heard of Chelsea's Hope until... Nikki reached out to me a while back, and this is such an important topic that is going on in your world, and there's some exciting stuff happening, too. So yeah, how about, Nikki, you go first. Give us a little introduction about you and your family and where you're at so far. Okay, well, my name is Nikki. Um, I live in Sydney, Australia. I have an 18-year-old daughter who has Lafora disease. She's brought me through this journey. She was perfectly healthy until she was 14 and a half. So she was at school um, with great grades, um, no issues, no health issues ever, never really took her to the doctor um, until she fell down and had a seizure. So, and this is a very common theme with children with Lafora disease. They're perfectly healthy and then they fall down and have a seizure and then, you know, they get misdiagnosed with epilepsy because the seizures are the most prominent, significant symptoms that they begin with. And then over time, they start having cognitive decline, so they can't keep up in class or they can't read or write or think and think, okay, and, and the seizures aren't stopping with the seizure medications. So 
you know, of course, you go back to the doctors, you're trying to work out what it is, and eventually you end up having uh, genetic testing done, and they they give you this horrible diagnosis of Lefora disease, which is a fatal terminal uh, degenerative disease, and the onset is in adolescence. So it is, it's very, very shocking because you, you've, you've had your child healthy, um, you know, doing everything normal. They've got their dreams and their aspirations. You have their dreams for them as well. And then things just change and they change quite suddenly. And it's very scary, very scary to watch your child change in front of your eyes very slowly. Um, you know, she loved to sing and dance, was doing rehearsals after school and I'd pick her up later and... Um, you know, full of life, uh, you know, had a big social network with her friends and it just all changed. You know, she just kept having seizures, trialling medications, they weren't working and behavioural issues started coming so they get quite angry um, and that's also due to the seizure activity. And they don't just have one type of seizure which people are normally know about a generalised seizure which is the big ones where they fall onto the ground and they, and they shake. That's the more common seizure, but they have different seizures. They have myoclonic seizures, which is like shaking. So their hands and their legs shake. And, and, and when, if they're standing, they can actually just drop and fall down to the ground. Um, or if they're trying to hold a glass, they would just drop a glass on the ground. And then they've also got the absent seizures, which are like blinking in the eye. So when it first starts, they, they, they just keep blinking and you, you just think someone's blinking or pausing when they're having a conversation with you. But during that time that they're pausing, they're actually having an absent seizure, which is disrupting their thought. And, and they don't even realize that they're actually having this type of seizure. So they're very hard to detect. The absence and the myoclonic sort of come together. So they, they're usually at the same time and they're the most fatal. So it's like, it's like having electric shocks go through your body um, at that time and they, they can increase in frequency and, and that frequency is what's very, very fatal. So they have to be monitored all the time, 24-7. We don't get sleep, me and Jen. <laughs> we, we don't get I bet you don't. I bet you don't. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. That is, it's just terrible. There's nothing not terrible about that. And to have it come on so sudden and like you said when you have a regular old life and you have these ideas of what everyone's future looks like and then it all begins in such a shocking way it really really is shocking then you find out they're photosensitive as well so then here comes hat and glasses can't leave the house you know you walk to the beach and the reflection of the waves triggers the seizure and there she's on the ground you know um, any kind of exertion when they, they their heart rate increases that also causes a seizure so it's it's very to me, the only way I could explain it lately was it's like lockdown, but a different type of lockdown. We're locked down all the time and it, we're afraid to take them out. We need the blinds closed. Um, you know, oh, no, that's too much. Now you've got to rest. You've got to rest. Sit down, sit down, you know, to, to in fear of them having a seizure. All in the process, like over the years, you watch them slowly decline so they, they can't talk. They're not, they're not eating as they used to because they can't swallow. It's unbelievable. It's, it's something you couldn't dream, make up. That's how I felt. I felt I couldn't have made this up in my wildest dreams um, that something so cruel uh, could exist. No, it's not okay. I can only imagine that it would be 
the lockdown that you explained with heavy metal music playing loudly in the background that you can't turn off that stress level. I know your child is older than Nikki's. Jen, tell us about your child. My daughter's name is Anissa, and like Anne, she was a healthy teen, enjoyed drawing. Drawing and art was her thing. She loved Japanese, all things. Japanese culture was huge for her. Kind, witty, uh, had a great group of friends, just a happy-go-lucky girl. And around her junior and senior year uh, is when all of this started happening. She was 15 um, when she started experiencing myoclonic jerking in her hands and her arms and when that happens, you're not able to hold on to things. So you're getting ready in the morning, putting on your makeup, your mascara, brushing your teeth, and your mascara is flying out of your hands, or the toothbrush is flying out of your hands, or drawing suddenly. She couldn't get the pencil down to the paper. The paper, it wouldn't, that connection wasn't happening. And she told us about it, but we really never witnessed it, to be quite honest. So we were, we kind of thought, well, she has a big imagination. You know, we weren't sure what was going on. She began to journal and kept a journal of all the episodes that were happening. And I ended up finally taking her to a doctor where they misdiagnosed her, which happens often with Lafora patients uh, with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. We were told, you know, give her some medicine and it's pretty much going to be controlled. She may even outgrow it. Okay, so that's what we did. Within a month of her diagnosis, she was at a school dance and we got a call from the school administrator that she had had a seizure on the dance floor. And of course, that brought a lot of fear into our lives as we raced to the school to to see her. And it was the first time I think that I started really feeling like my healthy, beautiful girl, like something was going on that was very wrong inside of her. And it all kind of just started expressing itself during this time. She began not only having the, the jerking in her arms and her hands, but she was having morning seizures. She'd get ready for school and oftentimes all of a sudden would let out this little yelp and then she would fall, usually in the shower, uh, doing her makeup in the morning. It usually ended up with injury. So we were dealing with stitches and getting her to the hospital. As a family, just like Nikki expressed, uh, we never knew when the next seizure would come. So we stayed alert every day and we began what I call the roller coaster ride of trying to navigate how to keep her safe while also trying to let her be a typical teen. I remember at one point her dad was like, can we wrap her in bubble wrap and can we put a helmet on her head? And I was like, absolutely not. We cannot do that to our teenage daughter. She's not going to be happy with that. But we were so terrified of what was happening to her because, again, we had three healthy children and never had to really deal with anything that was medical before. And suddenly you're thrust into this very medical, scary world where, you know, your child is having seizures and, and you're trying to navigate how to keep them safe and, and how to control and to control those seizures. By the time she was a junior in high school, she'd been to the hospital many times, spent many nights in the pediatric epilepsy unit. She'd gone through so many seizure medications, her seizures would change. We used to be, if we could just get through the morning, then her sister and I knew we could get her to high school. She'd be okay for the rest of the day because her seizure time window was over. But that's, that time window kind of changed over time. And the one thing that I started realizing as her mom was that she started to have rapid cognitive decline. She started doing things that just did not make sense. She was once an honors English art and Japanese student, and now she never knew kind of what end was up in school. She never knew what her homework was or what was going on. She was doing just things that a, uh, at the time, 16-year-old girl wouldn't be doing, like putting a wetsuit in her drawer 
or one day she left her brother, a real pivotal moment for me was when she left her brother on the elevator. I sent her and her brother in for an appointment and went in to find her there and asked where her brother was. And she said she didn't know where he was (laughs) and she had left him on the elevator. And when I asked her why, she told me because he said goodbye. It was in that moment I thought something is really wrong because typically girls don't leave their little brothers on elevators because they tell them bye, they know to take care of them, that mothering instinct that comes out in them. So I ran into the uh, neurologist and she told me that I, we definitely needed to start doing several different tests. So we did neuropsych tests. We did, she sent her to a psychiatrist. Anissa was fitted with the, she surgically with a VNS, which is a vagal nerve stimulator. That was going to help her. They said she was depressed. There was all these different things that they had told me she was. And then finally they said, we're going to do some genetic testing and prepared us for what those genetic tests may come back as. In December of 2016, we found out that she was diagnosed with Lafora body disease. As Nikki pointed out, it is a parent's worst nightmare. It is a very ultra rare disease. We only have 80 patients in our registry located in Spain. And we were basically just told that there were no, there was no treatment, there were no cures, that she would end up not walking, not talking. And in 10 years, we wouldn't have her. To go from like you said before, having children that were healthy and living life and, you know, doing your thing to all of a sudden life, just what I call, I turned it, it, we, we went into the upside down world where nothing made sense anymore. And we were just trying to do everything we could to keep her safe and figure out how to help her. I had to make many changes in my own life from stopping a full-time career where I had my own business to staying home to take care of her. You have to constantly have someone there for them to help them just to make sure they're safe with seizures and also just to make sure cognitively that they're doing things that aren't going to harm them. It just makes me sick. And especially like going to your website and clicking on see the children. I always like to click on that button because I find it so just special to look at their faces, but how similar they always look. And I got to your page and I saw a few children and then it said, and here are the children that aren't here. And it was 10 times as many that were on your website. And that is not okay. And I'm so, I'm so devastated for you that you have to be told this and watch your children deteriorate in front of you and nothing was being done. Yep, they said take take them home and just tick off their bucket list. And you're like, well, what, what do you mean? What do you, how can, it just didn't register. You just can't understand that that's what they're telling you. And that, you know, the, the prognosis is, you know, after two years, it's a rapid decline in the first two years. And then after that, they become in a vegetative state until, um, and then they pass away within 10 years of the onset of symptoms. And... Um, you know, so they they are to pass in their 20s, you know, um, and a lot of them don't make their 20s, to be, uh, to be honest. I think it has a lot to do with hormones, you know, um, because their nervous system is so sensitive. If they've got big growth hormones happening in their teens, I think that, uh, you know, is a trigger um, as well. And um, so if, if everything is a trigger, to be honest, even if reducing a medication, you have to go so slow because they're so sensitive that it can trigger seizures and you end up in ICU. And the amount of times we've been in ICU or just, just in emergency, it's just you have, you have an emergency bag ready all the time. And, you know, every time something happens and the, the paramedics are walking in, you just cry because you go, not again, you know, and you just don't know if, you get, if she's going to come out 
or you know or what what's going to happen is it going to be a big decline will, will she be able to walk when she comes out because each time that the disease is progressing and to touch base on what Lafora disease, disease the symptoms of it are are the seizures which which are the, the quite, quite common but um, the cognitive decline also brings on childhood dementia so they end up having childhood dementia so they're, they're very forgetful they get dystartia they get ataxia so they start walking they start walking wobbly you know and and slowly slowly over time then they can't walk anymore so it's very degenerative but it's it's like watching your child slowly fade away and you know you go back and you watch videos and you think oh my god you can't because you're living it every day and you look back and you think oh my god so much has changed you know to them being smart and switched on and talking to now you know them repeating themselves and talking really slowly or slurred speech and it's just not acceptable in this world now that we've got so much technology and what I want to touch base on is that the fact that they, they have found therapies in the labs for Lafora disease. Now, Lafora disease is a glycogen storage issue, what they have found in the lab. It's actually a build-up of glycogen. So um, over the years, uh, their body cannot dissolve glycogen like the rest of us. So it builds up like crystallized form and it just builds up and builds up in their body and attacks the nerve cells. So it attacks the nerve cells in the spine, in the heart, and, and most it's when it gets to the brain that's when the seizures start happening. So it's a big accumulation of glycogen and it just keeps building and building and building. It's like you're filling a jug and it just it just keeps overflowing. They, they just keep having symptoms and seizing. So, um, But in the labs they have found therapies that have found to remove the Lafora bodies. It dissolves them. So that's and knowing this and yet we haven't got human trials and that's where we're actually, you know, that, that's what we want to raise awareness of, that we know there's therapies out there and we just need to get our hands on them for our children to trial, to, to see if it does remove the, this glycogen that's, that's accumulated in their bodies so their bodies can heal and function again. So it just blows my mind that so much has come forward, but yet here we are. Um, we've, we've had planned clinical trials for ASO therapies and enzyme therapies, and um, they just keep getting stuck and keep getting pushed back year after year. They're like, oh, next year we'll be starting uh, clinical trials. Oh, no, no, the, that year comes. No, it's the year after. And then the year after comes and they're like, no, 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 we're not, we're not starting clinical trials. There's been a delay. There's been a delay. And until just in February this year, they've told us that they're actually not going to go ahead with ASO therapy at all because it's a numbers game and they're just not enough Lafora disease patients for, to, for them to have a return on investment. And it's like, okay, so here it is. It's come down to money again. It's, it's all about money and a child's life shouldn't be about money. Yet they've got all the, they've got, the solutions in their hands and yet we cannot get our hands on them. Okay, this is something that boils my blood. Who is controlling your data and who is deciding this and who has been funded? Who's steering the ship? Well, the pharmaceutical companies are steering the ship, yet they've in the labs and the research, they've been given grants to, to do this work and they did this work and, and it was millions of dollars for them to do this. And yet it, it, the pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are putting it on hold all the time. And it's, it's like, why are they the ones in control? I definitely have a couple thoughts of this that we'll talk about offline. But man, no, it's unacceptable. And 80 patients is 
absolutely enough to figure this out, especially if they have so much data on on this already. There's got to be another way. That's And that's what we've been fighting. We've been fighting behind the scenes to try and find another way. We're actually talking with Polara, with um, Ethan that you've had on your uh, podcast before, and he's helping behind the scenes as well now. To, he, um, we're trying to ramp it up and see what we can do because we don't want to wait and enough is enough. We left it in their hands. They, they kept saying that they've got it under control, but no, it's another year, it's another year, and, and they've let us down. And, and everyone's actually in a lot of distress. This, this year has been a very distressful year for all us families of, of patients with Lafour disease. Okay. And I'm so glad you connected with Ethan. He was one of the people that immediately came to mind of who I wanted to connect you with. So you're on the right track. You're definitely on the right track there. But I'm so sorry this happened. And I wonder, do you know of maybe some of the mistakes that your organization made or your funding choices made in where you're at now that you've learned from? I believe it's possibly because it was they just assumed that the pharmaceutical had a, a company had it all under control. Jen, would I be right yeah. saying that? Yeah, and I think also there was talk about like not not having our ownership of our own registry. We have a natural history study that has taken place. I have two children that actually did that for two years and we don't have access to any of that information. So it's like, I think that's the big lesson in all of this is how much, you know, you go into this and you're just naive. You're, you're, your child is diagnosed. You're trying to grapple with what that means. You get connected, hopefully, to a, an organization and as wonderful as Chelsea's Hope where you can have other families and know that there are researchers that are, are working towards this and they're telling you, oh, we're so close, we're so close. Pharmaceutical companies, biotech, they're all involved. And there's you're given a lot of hope and then you get the delays, 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 and the final blow was we've decided to, we're not doing this at all. And you realize how trusting you were of the process, but because their priorities change overnight, you know, we need to have more ownership in what we're doing and and those are kind of decisions now behind the scenes that we're trying to figure out so that hopefully we don't find ourselves in this situation oh my gosh just such a devastating situation that's happened to so many advocacy groups and families that just shouldn't happen and with this fast progression you know the time is ticking each month matters mm -hmm. to a lafora disease child each month they have a change and it's it's like well hold on you've just wasted how many years now that we've been waiting and waiting and you know of course as i said we were naive we were just you know little parent advocates and now we've really ramped it up and um our our association is getting bigger and we're in a way of where we're, we're taking the reins and doing a lot of training and learning what we can do to make change and, and make it right this time and what we can do in the meantime while we're waiting you know so we've been looking at alternate therapies as well of, for, that, for similar um, glycogen storage diseases that we could possibly trial so it can buy the children time until the Lafora specific therapies are available. I'd love to know some of the things that you're doing. Like, how are you accomplishing this? And like, you know, like if you want something done, do it yourself kind of kind of idea that now you're you've learned from you've learned from these mistakes and you're ready to like go full steam ahead. What are some of the ways that you're that you're putting that stuff in place? We're contacting associations with similar diseases 
you know, we talk to a lot of the professors and biochemists around the world. We're just talking, having lots of meetings and getting ideas or brainstorming or finding other pathways of what could we do? What repurposing of drugs could we use um, that could be shown in the lab or to try and, and see and see how we go. We've also got a group, a close group, Facebook group, which we found was the easiest way to talk to families as well, because we're all around the world and, you know, translation is a barrier. And Facebook seems to be a really great and easy way to translate and, and find out what others are doing and what's working for them, for their child, you know, and, and, and bouncing off you know, advice on medical advice, all different types of things to to try and get down to the bottom, you know, get the best ideas of everywhere from from parents to the, the researchers to the doctors to other associations and how they've run and how they've gotten to where they are. And we've been working really, really hard. So every every minute that we have out of caring for our children, which is quite quite a lot, we, we, are, we are trying to take that on so we can find a, a solution. Unbelievable. This is such an important reminder for families listening now who are thinking about starting their own research channels and advocacy groups to know about the important pillars that you learned the hard way from, right? Owning your data, not being taken advantage of, not using only one path to a cure. They're big big things that you just don't know about unless you have had the time and the capacity and the wherewithal to connect yourself quickly. And we have a lot of meetings as well. So we have a lot of board meetings so we can, and we're all, you know, we work as a team. You, you contact this person, you do that. You know, we're all in charge of different things in, in a way of, you know, whoever we can talk to any kind of say symposium or something that we can attend or you know rare disease association that we can become you know get the newsletters from you know so we can you know hear of other experts or some someone that we can talk to 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 make changes so yeah we have taken the reins a lot say in the past past year year six months to a year but more lately especially yeah that we've had this devastating news because we we did also believe that we were going to start clinical trials with ASO therapy that stopped now with the enzyme therapy it got stuck in preclinical phase for another glycogen disease because the the company went bankrupt because the actual founder he passed away suddenly and the so the program got dropped because you know there was no funding for that so it's it was just it's just sitting there in the lab just sitting there, you know, but we can't access it. So it, it, yeah, it's just been, I don't think we thought we'd get so many brick walls in what they kept saying. Oh, we're months away. We're months away. And months turned into years. What a nightmare. Oh my gosh. I just, I can't even begin to understand how you're coping on so many levels, right? From being a parent and watching your child go through this. And then the bureaucracy and the egos and the giant, giant misinformation mistakes. And, and you know, sometimes I think they knew it all, all along that they were just going to push us back, push us back, and then, you know, eventually just say, oh, sorry, we're not doing it. And I think they've known for a few years that they were planning not to do it. And, you know, and, and that's just not fair. It's not fair or when the clock is ticking for, for children with a rare disease. Well, it's not going to be happening anymore. Not with you two on the case, that's for sure. And now me, because I'm upset. And when I get upset, I die on that hill. So <laughs> I'm right there with you to help in any way. 
I know you also got a CZI grant, which is really exciting, the Rare is One grant. Can you tell us about that and maybe your ideas for it? Yes, well, we have our board member, Lena, who's um, become the executive director and looking after that. And she's doing an amazing job and continuously training and getting and in training us or getting us in, into any training and just the, the access to the right type of uh, resources that we actually need as an association so that's been very that's been amazing and she's just blowing our minds with everything that she comes to us with and we're like yep let's do it let's do it what can we do how can we do it and um, yeah it's been very hopeful it's an amazing association and they've given her the access to all of us the access but mainly her because she's the executive director so she runs it and she direct, direct, directs us in what we can do with just everything to the the registry to the to how how to also get some more expertise you know to to run the the association for us because a lot of us are just advocates parents volunteering we're sort of moving up and and we know we our knowledge is better so we've got a lot more knowledge than we did before you know, we, as Jen said before, we were very naive. We, we, we started this, we want, we want to fight, we want to find a cure, but we didn't know. And, but we've come a long way and we've learned so much. Wow. Amazing. I'm in awe of you. And I think that your story, even just the seizure, the seizure talk, right? Like, oh, nothing breaks my heart more than my friends, all of you around the world whose kids are suffering from these seizures and the constant just tightrope that you're on in not triggering one, right? And always being vigilant to the point that no human should have to be vigilant. And then, oh, becoming scientists and researchers and changing the world and and curing your kids and other people's kids. It's it's quite funny how many times you go, you're just a parent. I thought you were a pharmacist or, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's like, how is this real life? Yes. <laughs> yes. I have so many times where I'm like, my mind doesn't work around all this medical and research. And I have to just say, yes, it can. You can figure it out. Read it again. <laughs> You'll get it. Oh, my gosh. So what are you what are you doing to cope? I mean, I'm sure a hundred different things and sometimes you can't and you don't. But what are some ways that you can support yourself and others in your community right now that seem to be helping? I feel like I've you know, definitely trying to have self-care. I think it's very important for those of us who are rare mamas to make time for ourselves because this is not a sprint. It's a marathon that we're in. And every day, you never know what you're, you're waking up to. There was a time when I really lived in a space where all I could think about was the end of after the diagnosis of what was going to happen. And it kind of, you know, debilitates you where you just kind of sit and do nothing. And finally, I came to a place where I thought, I have to take care of myself and I have to figure out what can Anissa do. One of the things I'm always encouraging other members of our group is that, you know, yes, we're always worried about seizures. Definitely. I mean, we can go to the store and have a seizure. We can go to the movies and have a seizure or she can sit on the couch and have a seizure. So I am always trying to just focus on X, Y, and Z of what she can do and take her and do those places if it's a good day for her and give her those opportunities and not live in the fear of seizures or even possible cognitive issues. Because like Nikki mentioned, we get behavioral issues and, and, and that 
that's been the hardest part for me is to watch my daughter cognitively become someone different than who she was beforehand. And they become childlike as well. So they're childlike. So you're talking to them like a child and you're like, yes, they're a teen, you know, and And they're 18 and 23 and you're having a conversation of why they can't wear a certain outfit because it's cold outside or just, you know, things that you would have talked to a much, you're her at a much younger age. You know, you've had those conversations before. I think it's important that we have our our, um, Chelsea's Hope Village. I I say they're a lifeline. The first time I ever went to a symposium was in 2018. And it was the first time I got to see other parents whose children also had Lathora. And as people stood up, I just started crying because I thought these are my people. It's hard because your own family and friends don't often know what it's like to live as a rare mama in a disease that's as devastating as a lot of us live in. And so it's nice to have that support to be able to text each other, (laughs) message each other to say, hey, it's been a bad day or and know that that person really understands what your bad day really looks like. And and so those have been ways I think that have been really helpful. But another thing that I've realized is that and one way that I cope is that I am not the only mama who has ever had a child with a rare disease. I'm not the only mama who has had to care for a child and worry about a child. I have to tell myself often I got, what, 15 healthy, wonderful, fun years. It doesn't mean that, you know, okay, I'm glad with that and let's move on. But it means that I just have to really try to look at kind of the things that I do have and that she has been able to do. And that helps me to focus just one day at a time to get through and not really look at the big picture because the big picture is really gloomy. But if I take each day at a time and focus on giving her the best life that I can, and that's all I can do is focus on giving her that best life. And make the most of the good days. That's right. You make the most of the good days. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, ladies, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm here in any way that I can be to support you and get your message out and to stomp Lafora disease in its big face. Because after 100 years and so much research that's taken place, this this shouldn't this shouldn't be the reality for for these kids. No, no, not when the the labs have have advanced like the, the research and the breakthroughs that we've had. You know, if we didn't have breakthroughs, maybe we wouldn't be so upset. But I mean, we'll we'll always be upset. But the fact that there there are breakthroughs and we just can't get our hands on them because Mm of so much red tape, uh, if that's the best way to put it. And it's like dangling, you know, something in front of your face. But you can't have it. Here it is, but you can't have it. You can't have it, you know, and, um, you know, all that hope. And and we know... we. And that's why we want to fight. We know it's there. We, we, we just need to, to get it to our children as soon as possible. Yesterday. <laughs> Yesterday. Yeah. I think nobody is probably better at really slowing down and taking in those micro moments like you explained so beautifully, Jen, in ways that your families are getting through this alone and together and just hang on as tight as you can to that. It's something that everyone in our world needs to definitely practice. And man, I'm really just kind of shook and speechless. And I just want the best for your kids. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for being my guest today, ladies. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for having us. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. 
If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.